Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bloke and the Bird Show. I got nothing this week. It's it's been one of those weeks that you know I, I kind of thought there'd be a lot flying, and Monday and Tuesday there kind of were, and then it's like we went to break early. Well, you started strong, like you knew what you were going to head towards, but then it sort of fizzles out. You know, th- th- well, they've it, it's been so slow lately that they've already started on the Hungary preview stuff. You're kidding. You know, normally we get that around Tuesday, Wednesday or so of the week before the race. This week they started oh, Thursday. Wow. Yeah. It's a slow week. We've had back-to-back races here for a bit. Everybody's tired. You know, it's Coco's third birthday was this past week, so I'm quite sure the party goers are still recovering from the celebration. Yeah, I'm de- well, actually, it is a, a Lewis Hamilton dog, so who knows? <laughs> <laughs> who knows, actually? Although, you got to kind of feel sorry for Coco, because, you know, she pales in comparison to the one true love of Lewis's life, Roscoe. So where was the birth? Because I know Lewis apparently just wrapped up a photo shoot in China. So was the birthday party in China? I don't know. He posted a picture. um, I believe her birthday was like right around the British Grand Prix. Oh. And he posted a picture of Coco on her third birthday on Twitter. So I and she was in grass. There was no framing reference to see where she was in the world. But. I do wonder if she had a specially good third birthday. Again, one of Lewis Hamilton's dogs. How bad could it have been? Well, I mean, for the level of pampered pooches out there, I'm sure Lewis's rank pretty high. Yeah. So, moving on. This past week was testing over at Silverstone. Yes. Um, the The... Second and final of the in-season tests. Mm-hmm. One of the things that, that happened this week was the Halo came out again. Now, this is the modified Halo. And it, it definitely does look like it's been a bit modified. It appears to be a bit taller. Things are aligned a bit differently. This was also the first time a team other than Ferrari ran the Halo. It went out on Toro Rosso. Now, um, Sebastian Vettel ran with it first over at Ferrari, and he wasn't exactly flattering of the new design. Ooh. He did not like the fact that there it actually did obstruct your view. He said it obstructed the view up, and, you know, it's not like that you look at the sky, but it's there, and you know it's there, and it is a bit distracting, and he was not a fan of it and is speaking out against it, which I think could be a bit influential because he's one of, I want to say he's like the, the vice president or vice chairman of the Grand Prix Drivers Association. Okay. So his voice on this would actually carry a bit of weight. Um, but when Red Bull ran it, and I believe it was Daniel Ricciardo that ran it, they came away with the same general feeling. This is not the right tool. We, this is not what we want. This, is, this doesn't work. The Red Bull backup driver, I'm losing his name in – my thought. He wrote it. He drove it. That's who it was. Okay. Um, it was... I have to go scrolling and find it because I saw it. Han? Does that sound familiar? H-A-H-N? 
of course, you know, the story I have for either of the two stories, don't mention that they actually just have Christian Horner's comments. <laughs> but you're right. It, it was not Ricardo. It was whoever they handed the young driver test to who was driving it. And um, he did not like it either. But uh, Red, Bull, Red Bull and Christian Horner has come out and said that, you know, I'm not a fan of it. And when it comes up to vote, as of right now, he's voting against it. And that's kind of key because since this is a 2017, this would be implemented in 2017, and the season for 2016 has already started, it needs to be a unanimous decision from the teams. So if he votes no, it's dead. And that's an important piece. Um, I still have great concerns about visibility. I think uh, Vettel's voice in this really does matter. I mean, I there okay, so there were two designs that were originally proposed. There was the halo design, and then there was more of a, a capsule type. What well, was the arrow? It was Red Bull's arrow screen, screen, which has been disqualified because it did not pass the FIA's impact testing. Oh, okay. So this isn't a matter of, well, you know, if I put my foot down, our solution will happen. Red Bull Solutions done Dead. for the – yeah, it, it is not possible for next year. Okay. <clears throat> well, it, even even sour grapes that Christian Horner could possibly have, I really <coughs> hate the design of the, of the Halo. I do. Yeah. I thought the aero screen was better designed as far as looks and connection with the driver from mm -hmm. a, a spectator standpoint. But I despise that halo. I think it's ugly. Now, speaking to motorsport.com, Christian Horner said, Personally, I am not a big fan of the halo. I think it is an inelegant solution to the problem it is trying to deal with. I would prefer there to be more research taken to do the job properly rather than rushing something through that may have other consequences. I am not a big fan of the halo and the limitations that it has. He added, I certainly wouldn't vote in favor at the moment. I think that's important. Yeah. So as for um, what Sebastian had to say, he said, you lose quite a bit of visibility on top of you. You're not looking in the sky all the time when you go around, but I think it needs some further running. I know the decision is up fairly soon. I don't know what the results are on the actual research. I think it's clear what it's made for, and it's clear what it's supposed to do. We just need to make sure we introduce something that is safer in all, safer in all circumstances and we don't make any compromises. I think you will always have certain scenarios that you can't cover, but you try to cover as many as possible, so that has to be the target. Well, I understand the sentiment, <clears throat> but you know why he needs to be able to look into the sky, right? Seagulls? Seagulls. <laughs> I mean, you know, he's got a, a deathly fear of seagulls and making sure that he protects the animals. Yes, he, he looks after the animals and makes sure that Speaking of drivers, you know, we, we are th – this silly season is coming out to be a bit of a bust. I know. We expected so much more out of it. Um, but Jensen Button has come out, and he has said that at this point, talk for 2017 for him is guesswork because he hasn't decided if he wants to stay yet. Yeah, everything I'm reading says that – if you were going to be a betting person, at least just bet that Button won't be at McLaren next year. 
Yeah. Um, truly, it's whether or not he decides to retire or possibly go to Williams. Those are the two things that seem to be on the table. Mm-hmm. Um, but most likely, Button won't continue at McLaren. But, and that's the only thing that anybody's really talking about with any semi-certainty. And even that's up in the air because nobody's got an official announcement. Yeah. Um, we do know that nothing's happened till September. Nothing will happen regarding Jensen and McLaren until September. Uh, what he says is that uh, till I've made up my mind on what to do next year, there's, there's no changes. The team have already said they're not going to discuss anything until September. So he doesn't know why there's such speculation. He said, we'll see for now. We'll see then. For now, just trying to enjoy the racing. Hungary will hopefully be better, and we can fight for some points. So we'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. So last week. Last week. And there were two, I think at this point, pretty significant controversies that came out of the weekend. We talked a little about both of them. It doesn't have to do with a logo, does it? No. Okay. No, we're not going there. We never do go there. Okay, I'm just checking because you're talking significant controversies, and I just want to make sure that we stay in the straight and narrow of our trackside commentary. No, the British Grand Prix. Yes. Okay, there were two fairly significant controversies that came out. Radio? Radio was one, and the safety car was the other. Yes. So... Let's first talk about the radio one because there was a, a fairly significant development that, that came out of that after we had recorded and posted. You know, at the time, Mercedes was appealing the call with um, to, to penalize Nico and slide him down to third. Fourth. No, he went to third. He finished second. He, he ended up in third with... He dropped down to fourth, which is what gave Lewis the one-point lead. Okay. I don't have it up in front of me, but whatever. Um, they were going to – no, he did not go to fourth. He was in the in the driver's room. Yeah, he, fin- he, he got to celebrate on the podium. We're checking this out. Hang on. Okay. Hold, please, while I check my records. Daniel Ricciardo was in fourth by more than 20-some-odd seconds. You're right. He went to third. They swapped second and third. Yes, because we commented on the fact that Daniel Ricciardo was so far back. You are right. Okay. So slid him back there, and Mercedes was appealing the decision because it was a 10-second penalty, and we'll get to all that too. But first, Mercedes came out on uh, Monday and decided to withdraw the appeal. So this is the statement that Mercedes put out. Uh, The Mercedes-AMG Patronus Formula One team today decided to withdraw its notice of intention to appeal against the decision of the stewards of the British Grand Prix. We were able to prove to the stewards that a car-stopping gearbox failure was imminent and, as such, were permitted within the rules to advise Nico of the required mode change. However, the advice to avoid seventh gear was considered to breach uh, Technical Directive 01616 and therefore Article 27.1 of the Sporting Regulations. The team accepts the stewards' interpretation of the regulation, their decision, and the associated penalty. During the coming weeks, we will continue discussions with the relevant F1 stakeholders on the subject of the perceived overregulation of the sport. So, some of what has come to light, 
as to how this all went down and, and how things had happened was that the initial call that Mercedes had made, letting Nico know of the problem and that chassis mode setting, mm-hmm. Mercedes got permission to make that call before they did it. And what's not particularly clear, I'm assuming they got it from Nigel Mansell and the stewards, and it wasn't uh, Charlie that had given that permission. But they had permission to make that call. So when they told him that there was the issue and and the change in the chassis mode setting, that was approved and that was within line. It was right after Nico, right after that, when Nico said, well, well, what does that mean, what to do? And the response came from the pit wall of just shift through seventh. That was what was in violation. Because Ah, it told him. So they could tell him that there was the problem and how to handle the chassis mode, but they couldn't tell him exactly what to do about it. Well, that, see, that's where some of the confusion, at least from a fan standpoint, comes in. Because we don't know what this chassis mode, whatever, means and what it does. We know that they're allowed to say, hey, there's an imminent failure, which, of course, there's other questions here that, that have to be asked as part of that. The rules say you're allowed to tell of an, of an imminent failure that can lead to the retirement of the car. But what is this chassis mode thing? What what are you actually telling them? Because well, as a fan, when you hear that, that doesn't sound like, hey, something's about to break. You need to do something. Well, and that's the other thing is, does the regulation actually re- allow for uh, information how to prevent imminent failure that would lead to the retirement of the car, or does it just require that or allow for reporting imminent failure that would lead to the retirement of the car? And that's a very key difference mm-hmm. because it is a big difference for me to call you and tell you we have no milk mm-hmm. and please go stop at the store and pick up milk. I'm telling you in the first case that there's an imminent failure of milk in the house. In the second case, I'm telling you how to solve for it. One could say that the second case is coaching. Well, see, that's where some of the confusion comes out because, and, and that's why I said we'll, we'll loop back to this. What was it? Two races? No, it was one race ago. Where in Austria, where um, Sergio Perez ended up in the gravel due to a brake failure. That the team came out afterwards and said, yep, we saw his brakes were going. We knew he was in trouble, but the rule said we couldn't tell him. Right. Well, according to this, maybe they could have. But That was imminent brake failure that would have been terminal to the car. But I go back to, does it matter whether or not you can tell them that there's imminent failure coming if you can't tell them how to prevent it? Well, there's that too. And that becomes the question. Is what's the where's that line? Is it not in telling them that I need you to stop for milk on the way home, just that we are out of milk and you need to then make all of the decisions as to whether or not I'm telling you that I really need milk and I need you to stop on the way home. And I think that's where we've got to get this this conversation down to is take all of the technical complexity out of it and boil it down to something so simple as I get the goal is you want the drivers to drive the car. However, the cars are so complex that getting from point A to point B involves knowing encyclopedias worth of information that I don't really as a fan expect my driver to know. 
I'll I'll go you one better. Go me one. Did you you actually teed off my next point perfectly. Whoa! Okay. Because this week on James Allen's website, the F one app, that's mm-hmm. that's James Allen. He he knows everything. He raised another very important point, and it actually ties back to what we saw with the safety car. Okay, so the whole point of the radio rules was we wanted the drivers to be, you know, some kind of a hero, that they, they have got some kind of mythic telepathic connection to the car, and they know all of the stuff that's happening and how to adapt and adjust and do all of this stuff in case the car goes, goes wonky. But we had a situation last weekend where the track was wet and it was rainy, and the FIA said, hey, you guys aren't such great heroes. We need to go and, and have a guided start because you can't be trusted on the track and it's not safe and you don't know how to adapt to those conditions. So we're going to guide you through the track for your safety. But you can't have stuff radio to, radioed to you. For your safety. There you go. And they stayed out there. So long that they created that the, an unsafe environment. Oh, it's not just that, it, it, without even getting to the unsafe environment bit. But they stayed out there so long that the full wet tires, the tires that are designed for that situation, most of the teams felt that by the time that safety car came in, there was no need for them anymore, and they went down a layer, a, a level in tires. And for most of the teams, that was the right decision. So if that's how the FIA is going to respond of, we're not even going to let you run under the full wets. A, why have the full wets? And B, why have the rules on the radio that you're not, when you're not going to let drivers out there in extreme conditions in the first place? If you, you want the drivers to be the... heroes, let them be heroes. I fully understand. Mm-hmm. We could take that argument to an extreme and say, should. <laughs> what? I think we should. Wait a minute. We've plenty of time. <laughs> <laughs> but if we take it to an extreme, we're going to take it to the ridiculous. So okay. let me let me tell you where that straw man starts to fall apart. We want the drivers to be heroes. We want the drivers to drive the cars. We want the drivers to drive the cars unaided and unimpeded. Therefore, there should be no safety car. Why should we have a safety car? We should allow the dangers and the imminent problems that happen when cars crash into each other or people stop on the side of the track for whatever reasons to be things that the drivers have to react to without impediment. Here's where I stop you. And that's where it goes wrong. Nope. Here's where I stop you. Because in those situations, the safety car isn't being brought out for the safety of the drivers. The safety car in no situation is being brought out for the safety to, to allow the race, to allow the vehicles to remain on the track and, and events to continue on the track while the safety crews, the recovery crews, the medical crews, the driver who is now helpless because he has put the car in a precarious situation, situation to protect them, not the drivers on the track. Okay. So that so that that's where I, I, I go after that. That that's a completely different situation there. I think that the argument that not starting under the safety car and the radio being equivalent starts to degrade when you wind up putting the safety car on the track because you start making gray lines further and further down the line. And that's where I think it starts to get into the ridiculous. Now here's what I'm gonna tell you they should have done. Because mm-hmm. I know better. 
with my infinite years of days of experience at this, I know better. They needed to start that race under the safety car. I'm going to tell you why they needed to start that race under the safety car. They needed to start it under the safety car because the the track was so wet. They needed to do two things. They needed to force the teams to be on all wets and not have somebody try to do that on inners. It needed to start on all wets. The safety car should have come in at the end of lap one, period. It just needed to make them have a rolling start so they didn't have a crazy first turn incident. That's all they needed. Well, it, that gives you two things, though, when you do that. One is it is it kind of controls everything. I mean, they're still a bit bunched up, and there's still that possibility of that turn one incident. But it also, more importantly, it serves as a bit of a recon lap. Right, and and that's one of the points that that a lot of uh, a lot of the drivers have had, and a lot of the other folks who have questioned the, the decision over the safety car start is, but if there was at least a recon lap that the drivers had an understanding of where the puddles were, where the standing water was, where where the worst conditions were, once you release them, they've got enough information that they can make those decisions to to safely choose those lines. And especially in that situation where it wasn't actually raining. Right. So the more times that those cars are running, each lap, every the, the conditions were improving, as opposed to at least if it was raining, those conditions would have been as bad, if not worse, throughout the entire piece. But in this case, we didn't have rain falling. It had stopped. And truly, in the specific case of the British Grand Prix, they had two choices. They could have started under a safety car and then released the safety car after lap one. Mm -hmm. You get your recon lap. You get them moving. Mm -hmm. You know, moving. Therefore, you don't have that hard stop. to. You basically create a rolling start, which yeah, is that's, fine. That's what, that's what these do. These would start a rolling start, and it spaces things out just enough. That's all fine and dandy. The other thing they could have done is recognize that it was no longer raining and delayed the race by 30 minutes. The thing mm, is... That, that's an, a, a viable option that they could have done, too. Delaying the race, yeah, that, that was an option. That there's other pieces with that, but they, they've done it and dealt with it. The, the thing I have with delaying the race is that I think the track dry would have dried more and dried faster if with cars, cars on were it. on it oh, yeah. than if they weren't on it. Right. I, I, my thought is, okay, delaying the race has downstream problems okay. between networks and advertising and, you know, yada, yada, woof, woof. But my, situ my concern is if you could have added, you know, more recon laps so that people could get out there and help dry the track a little bit, but not have them under race starts so that they are really pushing, that might have been another alternative. Six to seven laps with the safety car, created danger to, in my mind the tires were going because the wet tires are better and the formula one cars are better at handling that wet weather say that 10 times fast than the safety car and i hate to tell you that the impression of what happened out there made it look like the drivers were in a better position to make that call than the safety car in charlie whiting and that's my issue well, there's, there's one other thing that I think needs to get called out, and that's the fact that it sounds pretty universally like the drivers don't like these full wet tires from Pirelli. 
these were supposed to be better tires because they actually got wet weather testing with them or, or wet condition testing. It wasn't what they sprayed down the track. But mm-hmm. th- these these were tires that Pirelli supposedly had testing to develop on, and the drivers are still complaining about them. They still don't like them. That's something that also I think the FIA needs to address is the fact that it does not seem like Pirelli is producing usable wet weather tires. Well, and that's and a safety car shouldn't be out there to neuter the use of those wet weather tires. Well, and that's true too. But let's circle back to the radio problem. Okay. I have a solution for the radio problem. Again, my days of experience in this should count for something. I think that we should do something completely crazy. Let them talk on the radio. Mm-hmm. Knowing that their radio messages have the potential of being broadcast already neuters some of the things that they say because they're not going to give away strategy. But they need to, it's a team sport and they need to be allowed to operate as a team. But I think there does need to be some level of restriction. And the reason why I feel that way is because go back to our experiences for the few races that we watched over at IndyCar. Mm -hmm. And especially when they are racing on the oval and you find out that they've got multiple spotters stationed around the track for each team and they're radioing the drivers when a car is coming up alongside of them, a car is about to pass them, a car is clear of them, and giving them... that. Honestly, what sounds to me like coaching. To me, I would think that an an integral part of being a racing driver is that you have the spatial awareness to know what those cars are. And if you're a driver attempting to pass, you also are aware of the limitations when it comes to visibility and the risk that comes with taking that pass. There shouldn't be somebody on the radio calling out, okay, he's, you know, Right at your corner paddle. He's 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 right at your your side pod. He's right. No, you should know that. There needs to be that level of spatial awareness, and that shouldn't be somebody on a radio talking you through a pass. Just like there shouldn't be on a radio somebody going, "Okay, break now, turn here." No. Okay. When it comes to controlling the the trajectory and the speed of that car and the position of that car on the track, that should be the driver's job. That's why they're there. Okay. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Okay. The minute you start trying to define where the gray line exists, that is where every driver will live. Yeah. The minute... The, I, I learned this no clearer than one of the early interviews that we watched with Adrian Newey, where you look, and he he said it point blank, you don't look at the rules for what the rules say, you look at what the rules are, are missing. Yes. And you exploit everything mm-hmm. that is on the edge. And so the minute you draw a line, that's the edge that people are going to start dancing on. And here's what I'm, here's where I'm trying to go with that. I think that the current radio ban is problematic because it inhibits the drivers from driving flat out. 
It inhibits the drivers from actually doing their best job because they're not driving the car anymore. They're having to learn how to operate the mechanics of the car. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a problem. I think the blame for this is not on the teams and not on the drivers for the extreme levels of coaching that you just described. But actually, I think the blame is on the FIA itself. Because quite frankly, I think the airing of certain radio calls is where we are, why we're in the problem that we're in right now. Had they never aired the number of times a team radioed to a driver lifting coach through yep. the, the corners, we wouldn't be here right now. The ban shouldn't be on the teams talking to the drivers. It should be on what gets aired. Because as a common spectator, as a spectator who has never driven a single-seater open racer car, I don't fully understand whether lifting coast through the corners means they're not driving flat out. Well, no, that's about all it means. It, it means they're not driving flat out. But if you were watching them on the track odds are you wouldn't be able to tell whether or not they were lifting and coasting or they were driving flat out. That's the that's the difference. Right. But I also know that there are times that you need to lift and coast for other reasons than th you're in a good spot and you're going to stay there and that's a good thing. I, how many times have we had a post-race interview where we have heard that the leader has turned down their engine and just coasted it on in because they but had the lead for it? But, but you can't tell them that anymore. Not during the race, but at right. the British Grand Prix, Lewis Hamilton, post the Grand Prix, announced that he had turned down his engine towards the end of that race. Yeah. That, well, that was also... Because he was that confident about where he was. There, there was some of that, and there was also the comment by Max of, oh, I was starting to catch you up, and Lewis looked at him and went, no, you weren't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. No. So... The reality is there are things that are going on that nobody sees and nobody knows with or without the radio ban. But the ban shouldn't be on the teams talking to the drivers. It should be on what's aired to the public because there's confusion with the public. And that's my problem is our drivers are suffering because they need to know how do you put it in a certain mode. And my feeling is that the ban, the radio rules should be very simple. The team should be able to communicate to the drivers when things are going bad. And the driver should be able to ask the pit wall specific questions about how to get the car from point into one motor to another and have the pit, ball, pit wall be able to answer it. Driver-directed questions should be allowed to be answered. Well, I don't even think it's so much that they shouldn't broadcast about Lift and Coast or some of the other stuff. The... the Issue that I th it's an image issue that mm -hmm. F1 is battling here. This, this belief, this image that people have gotten into their heads, and some of it is Formula One's own fault and it's certain drivers' own fault of way back when in you know the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, when y your safety equipment was the leather helmet and a, ha and a handlebar mustache, that when the driver was out on a track, they pushed to the max the whole way through and it was you know th there was there was never any need to, to conserve tires or conserve fuel or do any of these things and they could just run flat out all the way through and the reality is that was never the case that's not reality they always had to be mindful of the fuel level they always had to be mindful of the tires you always 
were in a situation where you didn't want to burn through your fuel or burn through your tires too fast and have to take a pit stop too early and give up positions and all of these other things. But the other piece of that is the drivers in particular, Fernando Alonso and several others, who come out and complain that formula that driving a Formula One car is too easy, that it's not as challenging and as physically taxing or whatever as it used to be. And that takes away from this image of what the FIA is looking for of the driver as the hero. And yes, yeah, some of that could be the, you have a young gun like Max Verstappen who comes up, but on the other hand, then you look at Max's performance and, well, okay, yeah, maybe that makes sense, but it's that attitude of, well, if somebody can come up that quickly with that little amount of experience, well, gee, maybe what Fernando and some of these others are driving, drivers are saying that it's too easy, maybe there's some truth to that. Well, except for the <coughs> fact that you cannot say that even about Max without ignoring large swaths of information. Yeah. Let's look at Max for a minute. The average karting age starts somewhere around seven to nine years old. Max was karting at three. Yeah. So he already had six years on the average experience level by the time he hit nine. He was in the garden on push carts before most kids were walking. He comes from a family that not only are both his mom and dad racers, so genetically he comes from that, mm -hmm. that pool. He comes from a family that owns their own cart track. I mean, this kid's got fuel in his blood. Yeah, I mean, this, this was their weekends. This was everything that they did. You don't get it ingrained into you that deeply that often. Right, but if you look at nothing more than the fact that that kid was in a cart six years before the average kid starts carting. That he was driving around the back garden in his cart, and unlike everybody else's mom that went slow down, his, his mom went, going, go faster. Faster, faster. But oh, six years. So you take his 18-year-old age and you add, let's just say, four extra years to it. Mm-hmm. Because he's got four, four to six more years of experience than any other kid at 18 years old has. He's now running at the 22-year-old mark. And guess what? Sebastian Vettel started at 20. Well, the only difference there, though, and it is, again, it, it's probably more in relation to the, the amount of uh, time he had in a cart already. But he jumped over most of the development series. Right. Which is almost unheard of. Again. But again, he had it deeply ingrained in him. And I think you're right. He, did, he didn't pay his dues in the development series like some of the other drivers did. And I think that in a way, you could go back and forth on your analysis of Max. Because quite frankly, while he is very very good and I don't want to dismiss the fact that that boy has got talent oozing out of him he's also highly inconsistent and consistency is something I think that you can build in those development series that yeah. he is not got because he's pushing at the edge he's pushing 
and he's pushing to prove himself. Mm-hmm. He's a young gun trying to prove himself. And I think that that's part of what we see in Max is until you get a layer of maturity on him, a la look at Lewis Hamilton's career, he, young gun, started great guns out of it, had a world championship very, very young. And then it, it all went to pieces. And then it went to pieces on him for a while. And he finally got it put back together. But when did he get it put back together? It was in his late 20s. He's now 31 years old. Yeah. And he's got a level of maturity that every commentator out there talks about, that it's a maturity on Lewis we've never seen before. We are now no longer throwing away races because our girlfriend dumped us. (laughs) I mean, that's important things. It is. And Max is still in that volatile period where we haven't got great consistency out of him. And when you compare that to somebody like, for example, Fernando Alonso, who I don't honestly like very much, and we haven't made bones about that, but I don't like him because I find a lot of what I feel his news reports about him are all hype, given his current level of performance. But the one thing you could say about Alonso when he was doing well was he was consistent. Mm -hmm. He was very consistent and very even, and that's what kept him nipping at Vettel's heels in those years. He was always right behind Vettel, but he was consistent. You consistently make third and second, you'll be contending for the world championship more so than somebody that's on the the top of the podium every once in a while. Well, you know, I I think what Alonso proves – is that you can have a fantastic driver in a car. That doesn't mean you're going to win championships. Exactly. That's what I think Alonzo proves. I, I definitely agree that we've always talked that winning a world championship <clears throat> has got three key components, and time timing is one of the most valuable parts of that. It's a top driver at the top end of their game, a top car at the top end of their game, and all at the right time. And that's important. But circling all the way back to this thing, you're right. We have drivers out there that want to be more lone wolves. They want to be perceived as lone wolves, that they've got this, that they know what they're doing, and that they're alone out there. And in today's F1, and F1 as a sport needs to recognize this, today's F1 is a team sport, and these artificial bands that come a part of it because you have a few lone wolves out there that want to seem like they're the hero really guts the team sport nature of it. Well, I think truly the FIA and FOM need to to really get down the brass tacks and figure out what the point of this ban is. Mm-hmm. Is it truly to prevent coaching and to further this image that the drivers are the hero, or is there something else going on here? If it's truly to cut down on the coaching and, and to, to really elevate the driver as the centerpiece, well, then they need to take a look at all of the other actions and behaviors that they have surrounding what the drivers can and can't do in the car and be consistent all the way across, which, hey, that that is an issue when it comes to how rules are applied. And how rules are applied is something else that I think after this past weekend, the FIA needs to look at. 
because there was no precedent for this. The first time that there needed to be a ruling on it, and apparently, according to, to Pat Simmons, Charlie Whiting went to the teams the Friday before, uh, well, the Friday of the, wa- the race weekend and said that, quote, unquote, the honeymoon period is over and that they are going to police these changes a whole lot stronger and stricter and, and be cracking down on these things. Okay, great. But there was no precedent here. So when we had the actual violation, and that was why it took the three hours for this call to come down, they had to come up with an appropriate penalty to apply. And the penalty that was, appro- was applied was a 10-second penalty. Mm-hmm. So think about that. We had a situation where with this 10-second penalty, that slid Nico back all of a position. How often are those Mercedes more than 10 seconds up? A lot. So if you're Mercedes, and, and what we don't know is, you know, how many times you can do that in a race and will you only get one 10 second or are, you, are, you, are these going to accumulate so that, you know, you do it three times, you've got three 10 second penalties you have to deal with instead of just one 10 second penalty. I don't know. But you're going to have teams that are now going to weigh how far are they ahead of the person behind them and what what advantage will it gain them to say what they need to say. Exactly. Can they gain 10 seconds ahead? Can they pass the car in front of them and still stay 10 seconds with that piece of coaching? Exactly. That, that that now becomes a proposition of, well, okay, now I know if I screw this up, it's 10 seconds. Where if they come up with a different penalty, possibly, oh, I don't know, a black flag or a disqualification. You would have definitely. You would have nipped it in the them. bud and they wouldn't have played any games. But now, going back to your comment about Adrian Newey, how far can we push those rules and it's still not screw us? Because the very minute that you've got 10 seconds between a car and you think you can gain on the next one, can you put 10 more seconds between you? Can you pass? Can you hold on? It's not even a matter of, you know, if you go and make that call, can can you gain another position? It's more along the lines of, okay, do we risk it? And let the car run and possibly not finish, or do we turn around and say the hell with it? We've got 15 seconds on the car behind us. If we make this radio call, we keep our car in the race. We still stay five seconds ahead of them, and we keep our points. Right. But if it can get to the point where, if you have a situation where you've got 20 something laps left, mm-hmm. and you think that that one piece of information could gain you a position. Plus 10 seconds? Yeah. Think that one through. If that, if, I mean, and the predictive modeling that are on those computers at the pit wall, they can do that type of stuff. They're going to be doing what if analysis on there. If I tell Lewis to change his engine mode up or down, does he advance? Well, the one question that we don't have an answer to right is I believe, and, and I have to double check, I, but I believe that the penalty um, 
what what or what the action is if you get a 10 second penalty or, or if you get a drive through penalty mm-hmm. but you don't have there, there's not enough time in a race or you don't take another pit stop before the end of the race i believe the response is a 10 second time penalty added to your time at the end of the race so could it be that based on that instead of getting a drive through penalty which actually probably would have worked out to 20 seconds could it be that the decision was made that in lieu of a drive-through, because a drive-through would have been worth, worthless at that point, they added the 10 seconds on, which means if you had done this earlier in the race, could they have turned around and hit you with a drive-through instead? We don't know. All we, know, all we have is the precedent of that 10 seconds. True. True. So it is possible— that if something like this happened around lap 20, that the, the ruling could come down of a drive through instead. And that could change things a little. But I thought a drive through was five seconds of not touching the car. They had to sit there, for five seconds. There, there's then- two different options. You have a drive through which is just that you have to drive through the pit lane, or there's a five-second stop-go. Oh, okay. And that's what you're thinking of. And that's where they actually have to come in, sit in a pit box for five seconds, and then either they service the car or you leave, one or the other. But that's the difference between whether it's a drive-thru or a stop-go. Got it. I see what you're saying. Is there any other news in Formula One so that we can stop, uh, you know, contemplating our navels on radio calls? Because obviously we can solve their problems for them, but they're not asking us. True. They should. They should. Well, a lot of the, the teams, several of the team bosses have come out and said that, you know, we, we need to maybe rethink, either rethink these radio rules or clarify them or something because it's obviously not clear what the deal is. <clears throat> Did you, have you, I'm sorry, I don't mean to sidetrack you, but have you given good thought to this one just yet? Okay. Let's say that they, over the break, let's mm-hmm. pretend for a second, over the break, Charlie Whiting and, and people clarify the radio rules. Mm-hmm. Okay. And under the clarification, the rules that cost Nico 10 seconds are wouldn't have been upheld in the clarification or they changed the rules somehow or whatever that happens. Mm -hmm. And so the point difference is three points between second and third. It's 18 points to 15 points. So we're talking three points difference. If Lewis were to win the world championship by three or less points with this kind of an asterisk sitting on the British Grand Prix, how well, does that affect? You, you got to think that that would be why right now the FIA is saying, no, we're not touching this. Because if they do, there is the potential for it to have an impact on the results. So I could see the FIA for the time being standing firm for at least the remainder of the season. And then turning around and, and revisiting. Mm-hmm. But right now, I don't think they will. Short of they might clarify, but make sure that that clarification does not impact what has already happened. That it would not change going forward, mm-hmm. the ruling from oh, go. In, Because unless there's a safety issue, they're not going to change rules. 
They may, they, they may clarify an interpretation. They may clarify penalties. I could see them turning around and going, yeah, you know, we went with 10 seconds for Silverstone. That was a warning, and we're black flagging next time. Yeah. I, I could see them doing something and, and the first offense stiffening. is ten seconds, and yeah. after that we're going. I, I could see them stiffening penalties. I I can't see them making things a bit more lenient be- before the end of the season. Interesting, but it's something that they need to consider because it could mm-hmm. put a giant asterisk on the season. Yeah. So. One of the other things that happened at Silverstone, we didn't talk about it because we didn't know anything about it. We knew Haas didn't do particularly well. As much as, yes, they have far exceeded expectations for the season, they didn't overall do particularly well. Well, we found out one of the reasons why Haas didn't do particularly well in Silverstone. It turns out that um, at some point in the race, they lost all power to the pit wall. Everything. Somebody unplugged their extension cord. Um, it, it. I don't think it was. It was necessary that they, they did need to get electricians involved. So it was wow. probably something a little bit more than just that. But about the time that it happened, they were trying to make the call and make the determination of when to call Esteban Gutierrez in to change from the intermediates to the slicks. And when they had made that decision, the power went out. They lost the GPS. They lost the telemetry. They lost the radios. They lost everything. Mm. Yes. So did they resort back to the old-fashioned way with the board to be able to tell Gutierrez to pit? I mean, at least they could have reached out to him that way. No, what they actually said was that their focus went less from um, trying to get anybody in or any of that other stuff. It was to get communicate, get everything back. Um, what uh Gunther Steiner said was that uh, they lost a bit of time because Esteban, Esteban ended up coming in a lap late for going to the dry tires, but they couldn't speak to him. They had no GPS, and they didn't know where he was, and the call came. That's when they made the call because they, it was just like, well, just come in. And mm-hmm. I'm assuming that's they used the pit board to say just come in, but they didn't know where he was to even make that call. Ah. Uh. Yeah, and then they, they get it back, and Grosjean's tra- transmission failed. So it was just a disaster for them. Wow. Yeah. Um, Now, Gunther Steiner says that uh, the team understands how to avoid similar failures in the future. He says it was an electricity problem. Maybe we need to do it a bit different. It's one of those things that we don't know why it happens. He says, I'm not an electrician, but I don't think it had anything to do with the wet. It just happened. It was a bad day anyway. We'll fix it and not think about it anymore, as I think the electricians found the root cause of it. So it sounds like maybe a connector came free or something like that as opposed to the rain because, um, you know, there was that big storm. and It wasn't a matter of weatherproofing. It was something else. Do you think that they were using the old Leyland British Motor Works uh, bullet connectors in their electrics? You mean Lucas Electrics? Yes. Like most of England was? Maybe. I don't know. I mean, maybe they inherited some old knob and tube and, and they needed to go to some different kinds of wiring. I mean... Glass fuses with the paper in them? Yeah, maybe that's what they are using. I mean, I'm just throwing it out there. So, yeah. They're, they're, Somebody who's going to spend her afternoon chasing down gremlins and electrics. Yes. But they think they have found the problem, and it will not happen again. Also hoping that they have found the problem would be Renault Sport F1 
in Jolian Palma's car, which at the end of testing, Mm -hmm. the very last lap after the checkered flag came out and Jolian was on his in-lap, the car caught fire. Oh, that's not good. So, you know, on a plus side, at least it happened last day of testing on the in-lap after the checkered flag. So they didn't lose any testing time or anything like that. Uh, they believe it was a, it was a hydraulic leak that caused the problem. Mm. But yeah, they they are investigating to figure out what happened there and why the car caught fire on the last day of testing. Alrighty. You know, um, I was reading a quick little like <coughs> gossip of F one, mm-hmm. and Jillian Palmer reminded me of this little blurb. You know, we know that B- Button's situation is very tenuous in mm-hmm. f1 next year um Jolian's is not that much stronger and um with that if we lost both of those gentlemen we could have only one british driver in f1 next year possibly i mean i think there are a couple in development circles that could come up yeah i don't know if any of them are being talked about because obviously we don't know who what seats are actually going to wind up being open yeah. since this the silly season that should have been the silliest of silly seasons is not that silly because i don't recall who red bull has in the pipeline um i would expect that uh, probably one of those toro rosso seats will be coming open well only one will be saints is yes Saint. carlos has been has been confirmed so we'll see how that goes which, by the way, speaking of Jolian Palmer, since you mention it, you know, we talked about how Max has basically been bred with racing in, in his veins. Is Jolian, that racing fuel for blood? Jolian Palmer is kind of the same way. I mean, his dad's a former Formula One driver. His dad owns, and I'm sure it was a bit, there was a bit of hyperbole involved here, but his dad owns a lot of tracks. <laughs> it's not like one track. He owns a lot of racetracks in England, and I think he's got a couple in Europe as well. Um, this is a kid who's also been around racing in Formula One for quite a while. You know, we watched something on Sky where I think it was Johnny Herbert was like, I, I've known Joe since he was in a stroller. I mean, it's. <laughs> yeah, I, I pushed Joe around in a pram. Yeah. Um, but there's a key difference. Mm-hmm. And the key difference is actually an interview with uh, Jillian's dad that it was a throwaway comment that his dad yeah. made. Um, but Max Verstappen's dad, yes, um, it was is very involved in Max. But I don't know how much he is in driver development. I think he's managing the career, but not anymore so much in developing him as a driver. I don't know in today's world how much he's doing to driver development, but he was definitely very hands-on in Max's younger years, his karting career. Um, He definitely has an opinion about how Max attacks the tracks. Yes, and whether or not he gives up positions. Right. I think the (laughs) the statement was that if I had given that up, that position up, my dad would have punched me. No, what what the exact statement, and this was uh, uh, Singapore, mm-hmm. when he was given the, the team order to give the position to Carlos, and he came back and said no. Um, he then said that uh, his dad had told him that if he had actually listened, he would have been punched in the balls. Yeah. That was the exact quote. Yes. 
I think the key difference is that <laughs> in stark contrast, Julian Palmer's dad um, came out in that same interview with uh, Johnny Herbert talking about pushing Joe around a pram was that he didn't feel like he had a whole lot of advice to give his son about today's Formula One, that Formula One was vastly different than yeah. his days in the uh, track. And he was a very much hands-off. So the contrast I see is that Daddy Verstappen is pushing yes. Max. Push, push, push. Daddy Palmer is like, go, kid. I'm supporting you. But and I'm getting a beer. <laughs> and I'm going to go get a beer and I'm going to go hang with the big boys. You know, I'm going to go hang with the contemporaries of my day. Yeah. But Me and this Mika is your Hacken turn. And are off to go and. Yeah, this yeah. is your turn and my day is done. And I think that there's a very big difference in that. So looking ahead. Looking ahead. Looking ahead. You know, next week we have the Hungarian Grand Prix at Hungary. And for those of you who play the sports casters drinking game, we have an amendment to the rules for this coming week based on talking points. Okay. This week, for every time that you hear a sports caster say that this was the first race behind the Iron Curtain, that's a double. Okay. Every time that you hear a sportscaster say that the track isn't used very much and therefore it's rather dusty, that's a triple. Ooh. <laughs> You're getting some people drunk this weekend, aren't you? And don't forget that every time a sportscaster says that it's hard to pass at the Hungaro ring, that's a drink too. <laughs> <laughs> How many drinks do you have to take to hear that it's Lewis, one of Lewis's favorite tracks? Oh, that's a double also. <laughs> <laughs> because he likes the high-speed corners at the Hungaro Ring. I don't think there was some, there's something about high-speed corners, but it is a track that he is his favorite or that Lewis goes well at this track. Or so. Both of those are, are great ones. Yeah, you, you're just going to get – they like to go back to that one a lot. Oh, yes. Um, Nico is waiting to find out. He may have to get a new gearbox as a as a result of the situation in Silverstone. Uh, they will not know until they get closer to Hungary. Um, apparently, there's a limit to how much that they can do to examine the gearbox and determine whether or not it's a usable gearbox they can't break down the thing and and pull it open because once i guess it goes into service it gets sealed by the fia so they can do external inspections they can i think they can like x-ray it and do a couple of but as for actually going in and going over the entire thing they can't do that so they won't know until hungary as to whether or not the the gearbox is still usable or it's going to blow up on them oh so yeah we'll see what happens there okay can i put a vote for blowing up the gearbox be nice. <laughs> I have opinions. Strong well, opinions. He, okay, he, here's something to, to think about now. Okay. Ignoring the the F1 trope about whether or not it's easy to pass or something like that and everything else about Hungary. We know Lewis needs is going to need to take an engine. Right. If Nico's gearbox is shot, and he needs to take a 10-place penalty for that. Isn't that five for gearboxes? He took a 10 last time. Or uh, I'm sorry. No, you're right. It's a five-spot five penalty. I was looking at the wrong thing. He has to take a five-spot penalty for that. 
if you're Lewis, do you then turn around and say, change the engine now, let's take the penalty now? No. Because you don't necessarily have to win. You just have to finish ahead of Nico. No. Okay. Because you still have 11 more races in the season. You, you do, need to get this engine that he's currently got that's working well as far down that road as possible. What he can hope for is to put it on pole at the Hungaro ring. Nico take the five-place gearbox penalty. He's not just stay ahead of Nico, but that he gets 25 points more than Nico. Yeah. That he he needs to get a lead before he makes that that engine change. But do you try and... I mean, you want to be strategic about when you go and swap it out. He's got to be very strategic, but if he was to swap it out today, he needs to make that that engine last 11 races. We know that the engines really last around six, and that's the key here. And so we need to be really honest about, does, is this not a better opportunity for him to start putting space between him and Nico as opposed to just trying to keep even? Yeah, we'll see. And I think that that's something to really consider. Well, the the other thing that Mer- the other tough decision that Mercedes is now facing is at what point do you start looking at 2017? Yesterday. But when do you start diverting resources? Yeah, you know that a lot of your competitors are starting to move stuff over, but you still have a title fight on your hands. They won't. They won't fully move resources to 2017 until the constructors is locked. Well, the yeah. The day the lo- constructors is locked, they are moving everything to 2017. True. But a lot of the teams have already started moving stuff. So it's how much do you start reallocating now but so that you can keep up? Because, yeah. You're making the assumption that they're not already working on 2017 in tandem, and they are. Well, they, they are, but it, but it's how much resources do you divert and when do you divert them? You divert them as soon as you've won the constructors. For, for Mercedes, that's when you do it. Okay. Because they have the money and the resources to have already put a lot into 2017. And if you compare that by comparison, let's look at like a Force India. Budget-wise... Mercedes, and this is me spitballing what their budgets are going to be looking like, but I'm willing to bet that Mercedes is putting development dollars in to 2017 equivalent to when Force India says we're now moving everything over to 2017. So for Mercedes, who has a lot more budgetary power, they can switch over later because they have the ability to have already started with a smaller budget. What Toto has to say Mm -hmm. is that they're evaluating every week how much resource in each department they want to shift to 2017. He says, you know, and and as you were saying, there's already a lot going into 2017, but it's a tricky call. I think some teams stop 2016 development very early, some of them even as early as January, February, once the cars hit the circuit. It is an advantage because the learning curve is very steep at the beginning. And if you're lacking two to three weeks, it can make a huge difference in the end. So it's a key question we ask ourselves every week. He also jokes that um, with the 
The points lost by Mercedes with the collision between Hamilton and Rosberg in Spain and Austria might have helped make a decision over allocation of resources that much easier. <laughs> he says, I wish we, we would have had those 80 points more that we lost and gave to the competition, but then it would be boring. Which, yeah, okay, you lost me at the boring part. But <laughs> but I think, okay, if it, it, this is a, it's just a math question to me, really. Think about it. If you have, and I'm just, I'm going to make these numbers small enough so they make sense in our world. If you have $100 to spend on development, mm-hmm. in the beginning of the season, you may do 75 dollars $75 to this year's development because you need to continue pushing your car forward. And $25 you're going to start going into next year's development. Follow me. As the season goes on, you're going to start making that swing to where you're at 50-50, and then you go to 25-75 the other direction. What I think, I think you're looking at it the wrong way. I don't think the concern is a monetary one. It's a staff one. How many people do you keep on hand to handle the care and feeding and support of the current car? Mm-hmm. And how many do you start to point over toward the 2017 car to speed up your efforts because it's more hands working on it. At what point do you turn around and say, we think that this car can handle without blowing any, without needing major components through the season? Oh, I- and I think that, that it's not so much a cash issue. It's when do you start diverting your manufacturing and your, your knowledge capacity over to the new car? A hundred percent agree with you, except that it does all come down to budget. It does. Let me finish my analogy. Mm -hmm. So we've said that, okay, Mercedes is running on this hundred dollar budget and at the beginning of the season, it's 25 to 75. Mm -hmm. And towards the end of the season, we know it's going to be the other way around. And budget in my mind encompasses both dollars and people because Mercedes may have a staff of 100 that's working on the 2017 car and 100 that are currently working on the 2016 car, and they're going to start moving that second 100 over to the 2017 car. Now, we're going to compare that to Force India, who, instead of starting with $100, they're going to start with $50 because they're significantly smaller. So now they can put 25 to 25 so that they're – They're matching the 2017 Mercedes budget at $25 at the beginning of the season, but they're only putting $25 into their current car. So their switchover point winds up becoming much sooner because they have a smaller pool of resources. If you look at personnel, they may only have 100 people working on the car in total. So they're working at half the amount of resources that Mercedes is looking at. So what I'm telling you is Mercedes can afford to make the switch later in the season because they have more bodies working on the new car than the other teams. They have more dollars going into the other car than the other teams. So it allows you to lengthen the cycle. They're still going to have to make the switchover point at some point, but it can be done later in the season because the resources are deeper. Ferrari will be able to make that decision and that cutover later in the season. They've already made the cut. Right, because they are so far behind. Yeah. If they, you look at a resourcing standpoint, they have the bandwidth to push that decision further down the road. That's why I say Mercedes will not make that cutover, that hard cutover where they're really and truly 100% focused until they've clinched the, the championship. And everybody will do it at that point. Right, because 
that's done. Yeah. So at, at that point, you go to minimum the minimum amount of stuff needed for the current year just to keep the car running. the only person that won't do it is the person that's sitting in third place if they're close enough to try to catch second. Yeah. That's where the rubber meets the road, and that's where the harder decisions really have to be made. Mercedes isn't going to have to make a hard decision because they're going to win the, the, the constructors. They're 100 and something points up on the constructors series, and it's halfway through the season. I mean, they're 100 points away from the Magic 324. Is it 324 this year? Because we have more races. Oh, it may not be 324. But even if it's 350, they're almost to within 100 points. I mean, they're so close to getting those numbers. So they're going to win the Constructors Series. I mean, they basically have to not finish a bunch of races to not Well, we do know that that is within the realm of possibility. Back-to-back number of races in a row? As this title race gets tighter, you never know. The the boys have proven that. And that is what keeps F1 exciting. But Mercedes is going to win the the constructors, and then they will fully shift over. It's watching the third and fourth place team and when they shift over is going to be very very key because if you think that you could win an extra point or two by keeping people on the 2016 car and that would push you into the next place that's dollars in today's money that's worth more to you than to dollars in tomorrow's yeah so yeah that's all the formula one news we've got this week it was a really kind of slow week but there were some things that we could talk about, so that worked well. Um, this coming week... We have exciting things going on. Besides Hungary, we're actually going to head back down to mid-Ohio for IndyCar testing on Thursday. So that could be kind of interesting to, to see all that stuff. We're hoping that we get the chance to see, and uh, we're expecting to get the chance to see Alexander Rossi and possibly Juan Pablo Montoya. Yes. And did, was there another former F1 driver that's possibly going to be at testing? Simon Pagano will be be down there. Or excuse me. Sebastian Bordes will be down there, who it turns out used to drive for Red Bull. Actually, Toro Rosso, 2007-2008. Well. Helio, Elio Castroneves will be there. He tested for, I believe it was the, the Red Bull organization. Mm. So there, there's actually going to be a couple of drivers there who have tested for Formula One groups. But, uh, yeah, we're hoping that we get a chance to, to uh, get a couple words with uh, Alexander Rossi and maybe a couple other folks and, and uh, get to wander around the pits during their de- – or at least the paddock as they do their development and testing regime. I think this is going to be very exciting. And not the least exciting of it is that Michael and I have test-driven our new sport brella <laughs> so that we can stay in the shade during the watching of this uh, event. No shade at the track? We'll make our own, dang it. <laughs> so uh, Nothing is quite as funny as us trying to put that up in the front yard last yeah, night. that's going to be great. Anyway, on that 
I think we'll call it a show. Remember, you know, we want to hear from you. What are your thoughts on this whole radio band thing? Uh, leave us some comments over on Facebook or over on the webpage over at theblokeandabird.com. Remember, we are available. You can download us either through the iTunes store. We'd love to get a review on Stitcher. And in theory... I haven't heard from Phil to get a confirmation, but in theory, the show is available up on uh, the Google Play Music Store, but I can't seem to find it. I got a note from Google saying it's there, and that we've been approved, and it's published, but I haven't been able to find it. So maybe we're there, maybe we're not. I don't know. But on that note, I think we'll call it a show. We are so glad you came. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. Remember, please discard all candy wrappers and popcorn containers in the nearest trash receptacle. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> okay. Are they all gone? Uh, is, is, there, is everybody gone? <laughs> huh? Good. Oh my gosh, my cheeks are killing me. I can't keep smiling like this anymore. I am exhausted. I think I need a break. <laughs> a little break? Okay.